Good evening. <clears throat> if you are visiting us tonight, please come back. <clears throat> I'm not the regular speaker. I'm just a fill-in. And so, uh, Romans in four, Romans in four weeks. That's the title of my, my message. I ask you, my Father, in the name of Jesus, take your word, break it, bless it. Bestow to each one a portion which is necessary and needful to them. For I ask you in Jesus' name, Amen. This idea of Romans in four weeks has been percolating in my mind for over two years. It started by accident. I received a phone call from a man I had not seen for over 30 years. I first met Mike in, in California at a charismatic conference in uh, the community church in San Jose. I was sitting down having breakfast with Dick Mills one morning, and as Dick got up to, to leave to, to get ready for the morning session, which he was speaking at, a young guy walked over to me and said, hi, Dad. I said, hi. And we began talking. Many years, I kept going back to Calvary Community Church. And every time I'd go back, I'd have the privilege of having breakfast with Mike at least one day during the visit. He told me a kind of a, an unusual story. He was brought to the United States from the southern part of Europe as a young boy. And he said that he was always interested in looking at pictures, photographic pictures. And he saw a picture of the Grand Canyon. And he thought, one day I'd like to see the Grand Canyon. Well, nothing happened until he was in the university. And he had to be flying from the East Coast to the West Coast. Now they flew over Arizona, the pilot. In those days, they, they would dip the wing of the flight of the plane. And he, this pilot said, if you look out to the right side of the plane, there's the Grand Canyon. And so he had to be sitting on the right side of the plane, looked down, he saw the Grand Canyon. He said, wow, it's a lot bigger than the picture showed. He finished his uh, studies and he had a desire to go and see the Grand Canyon again. So, being a young student, he hiked out to Arizona and took one of those air tours now it's by helicopter, by then it was in a small Cessna. And so he flew through the Grand Canyon. He said, wow, it's much more beautiful than I thought. Looking at it from the air, it's very different from looking at it as you're flying through the canyon. So he made up his mind. He could take another trip to the Grand Canyon. This time he was going to float through the Grand Canyon on one of those dinghy things. And so he signed up for a seven-day float through the canyon. He said, wow, it's even more spectacular when you float down the river. <clears throat> and then he said he had another idea. But this time he'd gotten married. And he had a little baby boy his wife also came from Southern Europe. 
And she wanted to take the little baby boy back for her grandparents to see the baby boy. And so Mike thought, you know, if I go back with her for the first month, nobody's going to talk to me. They're just going to talk to her and talk about the baby. So he had a bright idea. He said, sweetheart, why don't you go back to Greece? We can afford it. And I'll come a month later. And there we'll spend a month together. We'll have fun with the family and talk about the baby. And so the, the beautiful young wife thought, and that's a good idea. And so off she flew to, to Athens, Greece. He put her on the plane on one day. The next day, he flew to Arizona. This time, he decided he was going to trek through the canyon. And so he took this four-week trek through the canyon. Now, we're sitting down having breakfast. And he said, Des, there's a difference to seeing the Grand Canyon in a photograph. Seeing it from a commercial aircraft seeing it on an air tour or seeing it as you go on a, a dinghy ride through the canyon. And it's even greater when you trek through it. He told me that story. And when he called me about two years ago, something clicked. I thought that's what I'd like to do with the book of Romans. Tonight, we can do more than look at it as through as a picture. We're going to view it from a, a commercial aircraft flying thousands of feet in the air. You're going to get an overview. And hopefully, from the overview, something will be stimulated in your heart to some say, I need to take another look. That you may want to take a tour flight through the book of Romans. Or might become even more interested, he'll want to take a dinghy ride through the book of Romans. Or perchance, you become a genuine student I say, I want to study the book. I want to know what it says. I want to understand its meat. And so my prayer tonight is basically a condensation of the prayer of the Apostle Paul. That the eyes of our understanding might be enlightened. That we might get to know him better. That's the paraphrased version of his prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. So let's turn to the book of Romans. It used to be that the book of Romans was treated as a legal brief. And in some of the better law schools, particularly in, in the UK, it was studied that the logic given by the Apostle Paul was of such a nature that you're like a barrister presenting a case before the high court. Now, Paul does something different in the book of Romans to all the other writings of the letters that he's given to the churches. The book of Romans is written as a rabbinic script. It follows a rabbinic format. In fact, Paul is like John. For John does exactly the same thing. And what do I mean by a rabbinic format? It's this. It takes the first several verses and makes a series of propositions and from, the, from that part on to the rest of the book, he spends all of his time substantiating those propositions. John makes seven profound statements in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. Paul makes seven profound statements 
in the first 18 verses of the book of Romans. The difference is this. John looks at the gospel through the lens of Jesus the Son. Paul looks at the gospel through the lens of Jehovah the Father. His perspective is through the eyes of God. John's perspective is through the eyes of the Son. And so it's with this in mind that I want us to look at the first of the four basic ideas. And I've called number one, the revelation. In your notes, I was going to leave spaces for you to fill them in. But then I thought, no, if I do that, I'll have to stick to my notes. <laughs> and you know, when you get to my age, it's difficult to stick to anything. <clears throat> you have the propensity to meander and wander from pillar to post. And so I've put some of the answers in italics for you to be able to see the, the answer by press. In the opening salvo of what I call the revelation, Paul makes and gives a five-fold introduction. I really wanted to make it nine because I wanted to copy Pastor Vic last week. He had nine headings. And I did all kinds of tricks to try to find nine in there, but I couldn't find nine. So I let the book say what it wanted to say. Paul makes a five-fold introduction. And now because in the days of the Apostle Paul at that particular time, documents and letters were written on scrolls, it was common, unlike today, not only to write your signature at the end of the letter, but they would insert at the very, very beginning the author and the recipient of the scroll. And so Paul followed this format in all of his writings. His name comes up very early, and the people to whom he's writing is also in the opening statement. The author is Paul, really, Saul of Tarsus. The recipient is the Christian congregation in the city of Rome. Though Paul has not as yet had the opportunity to meet with the Christians of Rome, he knows a lot about them. And we'll come to see that this is true as you come to the latter part of his letter or his epistle to the church at Rome. But not only is he familiar with the church at Rome, the church at Rome is very familiar with Paul. Though they've not seen him face to face, Though they do not know what he looks like, they've heard of him, they've heard of his teachings, they've heard of the miracles that have taken place, and so it's as though Paul is writing to friends, and yet it's unknown friends in that sense. And so initially, the first introduction is this, Paul senses the need to introduce himself. Now, this would be uncouth in classical documentation. You normally address the recipient and the, you approach the recipient by saying certain things and what you need to say, and only at the end would you insert your own person. Paul inserts his person from the very beginning. And we note three things about Paul. We note his posture. He says, I am a slave, a bond slave, one who is totally subject to the will and to the whims of the master. He speaks of his privilege. He said, though I'm a bond slave, 
That's what he calls himself. He's been called by Jesus to be an apostle. He's appointed to be a servant of Jesus with all the authority which is given to the apostolic group at that particular time. He was set apart by the Lord for a specific purpose. And that shows his purpose. He was set apart. A word literally means to set boundaries. He had a particular boundary set around his life and around his purpose. And that was for the advancement of the gospel. It seems as though Paul's unique heritage, a Jewish mother, a Greek father, and being a Roman citizen, though his heritage was somewhat advantageous, it was not a necessary prerequisite for his calling. He was called not because of what he was, he was called because of grace. A friend of mine, it's important for us to understand that everything that we are in Jesus and everything that we're able to do for the Lord Jesus is not because of our talent, it's not because of our gifting, it's not because of our personality, it's not because of anything significant about us, it's because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we sung tonight, Jesus is the center of it all. For the church from beginning to the end, and for believers, everything that we are and everything we ever hope to be is because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul repeats his claim in Galatians chapter 1, in verse 15, where he says, But when God, who set me apart from birth, and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul sensed the need to introduce himself. Secondly, Paul sensed the need to introduce the Lord Jesus. Look what he says in verse 2. Which he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's the first expression of significance that he's giving about Jesus. He is underscoring his humanity according to the flesh. Now there was a, no, I don't want to go into that. The controversy in the, in the, for the first century and a half had to do with, was Jesus really man? And then they began to ask, was Jesus really God? And the controversy continued. Paul opens up by saying, there's no question about the fact Jesus was real. He was really human. Born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Then he goes on to give the next statement about Jesus. And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Here he's speaking of his deity. Jesus, fully man, but also fully God. And he continues, for through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are at Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father. May I suggest to you when grace comes from heaven, peace will rule in your heart. 
no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance, no matter whether it's tumultuous <coughs> or pacific, when grace comes from heaven, peace will rule within your being. And so he says, first, understand, I'm, I'm still waiting for Paul to write to get to his second point. He starts, first, he never ever gets the second point. He gets carried away like most preachers. <laughs> he goes off on this glorious tangent, speaking of the magnificent gospel according to the grace of God. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ. There he's speaking of not his humanity, not his deity. He's speaking of his ministry. Through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Paul underscores the mediatorial role of Jesus as Christ is exercised both Godward and manward. It is through the Lord Jesus that God's grace is conveyed to us. It is through the Lord Jesus that human gratitude is conveyed to God. Now, I know that we often say, well, you know, just open your, up your mouth and just blurt out praise to God. Praise comes from a grateful heart, which is rooted in grace. Everything that we experience and everything that we enjoy in life comes from the glorious fact of the grace of God. And so, I missed one out. And the Lord Jesus Christ, Curious Jesu Christu, which speaks of his majesty. So Paul, in introducing Jesus, speaks of his humanity. He speaks of his deity. He speaks of his majesty. And he speaks of his ministry. That is the full orb setting of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each one is like a diamond. You put a diamond on a piece of black velvet and expose the light and suddenly you get all shafts of colors coming from that same diamond. That's what happens when you put any one of these four facets of the life of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and look at it in detail. And I hope you will. I hope that you'll not say, oh, well, I know not but the first 18 verses of, uh, of Romans 1. Because you don't. Because I don't. There's so much in this for us to discover. As Paul prayed to the church at Ephesus, or at least in the Ephesian the cyclical, that the eyes of our understanding might be enlightened, that we'll get to know him better. I have traveled this planet for many, many, many years. And the regret that I have in my system is I know so little about my Lord. And I know so little about his word. Oh, to know him more. The old hymn says it so eloquently, more about Jesus would I know. More of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me, more, more about Jesus. I hope that somehow, as you look at the book of Romans, it begins to stimulate you to take another look at Jesus, and take another look at what this book says. And so he introduces himself. Then he introduces the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, he introduces and, and identifies the recipients. Note what he says about them. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Let me ask you a question. 
How many of you know that you're loved by God? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you would call yourself a saint? Because that's what we are. That's our position. Because we are beloved by God and because he has sealed us and washed us by his blood and sealed us by his spirit, we are called saints. We are set apart. Weymouth translates the verse this way. God's loved ones who live in Rome, who are the saints of the Most High. They reside in Rome, but they live in Christ. I live in Fort Worth. That's where I reside, but my life is in Jesus the Christ. Can you say amen? Paul, who claimed to be appointed as an apostle, now says because they're loved by God, they are appointed to be saints. They're not saints because they say so. They're not saints because the church says so. They are saints because God says so. So all the saints stand up. Thank you. Okay, you may be seated. We are different. Because of the grace of God, we are different. Greatly loved, hallelujah. But more than that, we've been given a status. And that status is that of sainthood. I don't have to wait till I die for the Catholic Church to begin to evaluate whether I ought to be considered for sainthood. <laughs> I wouldn't make it. <laughs> I don't need to, to make it because I'm, I'm already I'm already a saint. Amen. Not just in the eyes of the church, but in the eyes of my heavenly Father. So no wonder Paul confers upon them this incredible apostolic blessing. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. When grace comes in, Peace will reign. Fourthly, he sensed the need to introduce the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, the Apostle Paul simply said this way, and declared, speaking of Jesus, to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. That is a Hebraic way of saying Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of holiness because he is the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on to say that according to the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection from the dead. It is important, it is imperative that we understand not only the work of Jesus in redemption, that we also understand the work of the Holy Spirit in redemption. The Father is the author of it. Jesus is the agent. And the Holy Spirit is the administrator of the redemptive purpose. The Father is the author the son is the agent, the one who paid the price in full. And it is the Holy Spirit who administrates it in the lives of individuals. It's the Holy Spirit. <coughs> <coughs> Pardon me. 
It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us. It's the Holy Spirit who draws us. And when we go through the process of repenting and inviting God to come into our lives, it's the Holy Spirit that creates life within us, then seals us to become the children of God. The, both the inworking and the outworking of the redemptive expression is based upon and dependent upon the administration of the Holy Spirit. And sad to say that for, for many today, he has become the forgotten one. We're not called to pray to the Holy Spirit, but we do pray through the Holy Spirit. He is not the object of adoration. He is not the object of worship. But he is the agent that enables us to give adoration to the Son and to the Father and to glorify both their names. And finally, Paul senses the need to identify or introduce the Father. And in doing this, the Apostle Paul attributes seven things to God the Father. And these seven things are significant and they're important for us to remember because as we celebrate who we are and what we are, children of God, washed in his blood, sealed by his spirit, destined for eternity, that we understand what Paul sees, the administration, that's not the administration, the authorship of God in this particular work. First thing he speaks of, because every one of the seven terms are documented in the first 18 verses, and it's related to of God. Of God. In verse 1, we read, Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before his, his prophet, by his prophets in the Holy Spirit. Into this introduction, the apostle Paul inserts one of the main and one of the earliest creedal confessions of the early church. It has to do with the acknowledgement and the affirmation of the person of Jesus. And it's found in verse 3 and 4. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. So first of all, he speaks of, what is it? The gospel of God. Now he's underscoring the Son of God. And he's doing this deliberately because each one has a significance which is sacred and which is special to those who read and to those who listen to the word. And so Paul continues, having introduced and brought into the, the fold of his argument the Son of God. He says, through him, the Son, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ, to all who are in Rome, be loved 
of God. Number three, be loved of God. So he has talked about the gospel of God, the son of God, and now the beloved of God. And so he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, first of all, I thank my God. Eucharisteo. Eucharisto is the idea of giving thanks, of giving praise, of offering up adoration and worship. He says, I'm thankful to God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. How would you like to have been a member of the church at Rome and reading this letter? From the man who was not only the most controversial of the apostles, he was also the most dynamic. And he writes to them, I have not seen you face to face, but I know of you and I thank God for you. There are times when people who've served on the foreign field come home on furlough and they visit the churches that supported them and helped them and they simply say, we thank God for you, for your faithfulness. That's because of the, the positive, practical interaction which has been taking place between that local fellowship and the missions, missionaries on the field. Paul had not received any support from Rome. So he's not thanking God for them because he's received from them. He's thanking God because of who they are, not just because of what they have done. They are living at the hub or the place of power on planet Earth at that time. A godless, wicked city. Totally perverse. Much of the upper crust was perverted. There was little one could say which is of goodness about the city of Rome. And yet in the middle of that city, there was a church standing true and standing strong, glorious in its witness for the test of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says of them, your faith is renowned throughout the whole of the world. Friend, the world, the Christian world is enhanced by your faith. They may not know you. They may not ever see you. But because we are part of a chain, that when one part of the chain is, is weakening because of pressure, because of stress, it receives enablement by other parts of the chain, which is lifting them up for the glory of God. There is a story told which is famous here in the Metroplex of a missionary who was serving God in the central part of Africa. And uh, one night, one of the intercessors was awakened and said, I need you to pray. I said, Lord, it's, it's too early. I'm too tired. He said, pray. I also want you to get 11 others to join you in prayer. He said, Lord, 
there will not be 12 people awake at this hour in the morning. The Lord said, wake them up. The way that I've awakened you, you awaken them. Why? The Lord said, because I asked you to do so. So she calls around and got 11 other grumpy people out of bed. <laughs> now what are we praying for? Well, sir, I'm not really sure. Oh, thank you. But I want you to pray. He said, our God said specifically 12. The one person said, you know, I've got a burden for such and such a person. The other person said, you know, his knee flashed across my mind too. And so they decided to, to pray for this, this individual. Call him by name. They knew the man because he came from that part of, of Texas, from Arlington. Four years later, this guy was in town and he's telling a story. He said, you know, I had a strange experience four years ago. One of the ladies that picked up four years ago. Now, this is the same guy that we were praying for four years ago. He said, I, I was passing through a jungle en route to an appointment, and I got ambushed by 12 men. He said, 12 men? He said, there, there, the machetes. They were determined to rob me and kill me and steal my Jeep and steal the equipment that I had. And he said, all of a sudden, they froze. He said, when they froze, I froze too. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. At this time, one little old lady couldn't stand anymore. said, what was the date? <laughs> he said, I, I can give you the date. Give the date. What was the time? He said, well, the time in, in Africa was such and such. The time in the States would have been, he gave the time. And the woman said, oh, my God. <laughs> she said, what do you mean, oh, my God? And she told the story. I was awakened. I was told to get out of bed. I was told to get 11 others to pray with me. So I didn't know I was supposed to pray for you, but one of the others said that you would come to their mind. By now, the service had come to a stop. The guy began to weep. He said, what you don't understand is this. What I could not see, but what they saw was in front of every bandit, there stood a man. So that man was a, an, an angel and he froze them. I was able to drive on my way. I said, when I got to the village where I was supposed to meet with some leaders, the news had already arrived. Don't mess around with that fellow. He's got an army with him. 
We didn't see them when we went to apprehend him. But they came before us. Don't mess with that man. When we join in prayer, we may be part of the weak link or we may be part of the strong link. But the power of God goes down that chain to where it is necessary or where it is needed most. Beloved of God, because he was beloved of God, God woke a grumpy lady out of her sleep and 11 other grumpy women. <laughs> the question was asked, why didn't you call men? She said, I tried to wake up my husband, but he was too fast asleep. <laughs> Beloved of God, Paul continues by expressing his apostolic burden of prayer ministry. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Make your request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Every pastor, most Sunday school workers know this, that there are times when you want to say, I'm going to do this, and God says, no. And there are other times in which without any understanding whatsoever, you get that prompting. This is what I want you to do. Both the yes and the no of the will of God is important to those who are beloved of God. If the answer is no, that negative is a benefit, will be a benefit for us later along the road, which we will discover to our delight that God was taking care of us. And here is Paul. I am literally dying to come to Rome. I have wanted to come to Rome. I have tried to come to Rome, but I've been hindered. And so he said, now... I pray that at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Paul had no idea how he's going to get to Rome. He would have rather gone by bus <laughs> than gone by ship. A ship that sunk. But when he gets to shore, as he putting wood on the fireplace, an asp hits him, and the people said, "Ah, uh ah, -uh. he escaped the sea, but he didn't escape the snake." And Paul says, "Get off me, you devil!" And the snake drops in the fire, and then the folk look and says, "He ain't dead. He ain't dying. He must be a god." So from turning from a criminal. He became the deity in a matter of 20 minutes. Paul wanted to do that which is right, the right way, at the right time, for the right reason, in the grace of God. You see, he goes on to tell them why he wants to see them. Let us go the priorities of Paul's ministry. You know, I've been speaking a long time. They put me on at quarter two. 
I need to quit. The priority of Paul's ministry, number one is fellowship. I want to see you. Function. I want to impart something unto you. And number three, fruit. I want to establish you in the ways of the Lord. And this has always been the thrust of pastoral ministry. It's based upon fellowship, which encourages function <coughs> so that fruit, good fruit, might remain. And so he said, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that, that often I planned to come with you, but was hindered until now. What hindered him? The devil. Well, what hindered Paul was not so much the devil. It was the heavy responsibility, responsibility of the work. He already had more than he could handle. And yet such was his desire to take the gospel to regions beyond. He says, I want to come. But every time I, I begin to want to come, something else crops up. He writes the church at Philippi, it'd be advantageous for me to go on home. But it wouldn't be for you. Because you need to have me around. And then he goes on to give this incredible threefold apostolic thrust. He calls, it underscores a disposition. It underscores his dedication. It underscores his delight. He says, I am a debtor. That's his disposition to both Greeks and barbarians, to both wise and to unwise, I have an obligation to them. That's a disposition. That's the driving force of an evangelist. That's the driving force of an apostle. They eat it. They live it. They dream it. They chew on it. Day after day, I've got to do something. I've got to go somewhere. I've got to accomplish something for the glory of God. It's the inner drive. Paul says, I'm a debtor. Paul, why did he just settle down? They love you in Philippi. No, they don't think all that much of you in Corinth, but boy, they love you in Philippi. <laughs> Why didn't you take an easy little job in Philippi? You hear Paul saying, the love of Christ compels me. I'm a debtor. May I ask you an honest question? What motivates you? What motivates your life? What stimulates your heart and your life and your love? I'm a debtor of both the Greeks and the barbarians. He said, so much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. That's a dedication. Then he makes that incredible statement. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek, the power of God. It does not want to do things in his own power, in his own strength, according to his own ingenuity. His motivation to declare the gospel was in the power of God. Friend, to be honest with you,
of ourselves, we can do very, very little. We may stimulate, we may excite, we might uh, encourage, we might please, but for an eternal expression to take place in the heart of the individual, it comes from a force beyond us and not because of us. He speaks of the power of God. The power of God to salvation for everyone that believes. I'm getting tired. For it is the righteousness of God. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I'm not sure if I put this in your notes. I hope I did. Seven things regarding the essence of the gospel. Its source is God. Its nature is not philosophy. Its nature is power. Its purpose is not religion. Its purpose is salvation. Its scope Jesus included me. It's for everyone. Its reception is based upon faith, believing. Its eloquence that the righteousness of God is revealed. And its effectiveness is life. Now, let me bring this thing to a close by saying the following. Paul is not only writing as a rabbi. He's also utilizing rabbinic thought and imagery in the elucidation of the gospel. Thus, when Paul speaks of righteousness, he is using it in the context of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, righteousness realistically had the concept of right and wrong. It had forensic implications. It was something which could only be determined by a judicial authority that it was a judge that made the final disposition. Thus, righteousness in the context of Hebrew thought is not so much a moral quality as it is a legal status. I am declared righteous. Because the judge of the universe said so. You can look at my record and say, hoo, 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 hoo. he's anything but that. My standing is not based upon my record. My standing is based upon what the judge has said. And he has declared me righteous. Clothed not with my own righteousness, but with the righteousness of God in Christ. And in that, I'm complete in him. So the Hebrew term, zadik, which is translated righteous or just, simply means in a Hebrew setting, in the right and the Hebrew word, rasha, translated wickedness or wicked, simply means in the wrong. So let's take the religious verbiage away from righteousness and from wrongness. This is clearly evidenced in Exodus chapter 9. 
verse 27. And Pharaoh sent a call for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. This time? Every time. But he said, this time, the Lord is Sadiq. The Lord is right. The Lord is righteous. A statement of fact. And my people and I are wicked. Rasha. The Lord is right. And we are wrong. Thus, the power of the gospel, which reveals the fact God is right and I was wrong. For that reason, Jesus came that he might change my status from being part of the wrong to becoming part of the right from becoming part of that which was totally perverse to becoming that which is wonderfully pure. And so Paul says, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the one made right by faith shall live. And so from Paul's perspective, there is a twofold expression of righteousness revealed in the gospel of Christ. There is that righteousness which is the essential expression of his character. God is always right. Secondly, there is the righteousness which is imputed to those to me, who have done wrong, we are made right for the glory of his name by the blood of Jesus. Thus, true righteousness is revealed by God and by faith, humans receive it. And so Paul sets the stage for the rest of the book. Seeing the gospel has forensic implications and that the final determination is made by the judge, it is natural then for Paul to continue his line of reasoning by speaking of punishment meted out by a judge. And that's what Paul says. For the punishment of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, against all that is wrong. And without Jesus the Christ, we all have a record. And that record is bad. But because of Jesus, forensically and legally, our record has been transformed from being part of that which is wrong to being part of that which is right. And so in verse 18, as he sets the stage for the premise of his, God, of his, of his book, Paul simply states, Humanity has been arrested. When Jesus came, humanity was arrested. The charges have been presented. The verdict is in guilty. And the sentence is about to be pronounced. But Jesus said, uh-uh. He was wounded for my transgressions. 
He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of our peace. No, that's not the way he said it. Do you you not pronounce that word? Chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are made right. And today, tonight, you're looking at an old saint that's celebrating the gospel of Jesus Christ with a bunch of young saints. And to that I say, thank you, Jesus, because only he could do it. And with that, good night. God bless you. Bye-bye. If you're visiting, please come back. I'm just a fill-in.